0: Tomorrow is Martin Luther uh, King's uh, uh, day, and rightly so. I was a child of the 60s uh, and saw a lot of uh, unjust things when I would go to South Carolina to see my family every summer from California. And uh, so I thought, it, uh, I thought it great to start today with just a reminder of bravery. And uh, when bra- I think of bravery, I think of Rosa Parks, uh, who back in 1955 uh, uh, decided that she wouldn't give up her bus seat to a white man. Uh, she was a seamstress uh, coming home from work, and she was tired. Uh, and she was not the, the first uh, thir- first uh, uh, black person to say she wouldn't move because uh, you were supposed to give up a seat if a white person came in and there wasn't room. And she wasn't the first one to do that, but she was the first one that uh, everybody got together to stand behind her because of her bravery. She was a seamstress. She wrote a book called Quiet Strength, and listen to her words, and you can just see the bravery of this young woman. She said, when I sat down on the bus that day, I had no idea, History was being made. I was only thinking of getting home. She said, I had made up my mind. Uh, After so many years of being the victim of mistreatment, my people suffered, not giving up my seat, and whatever I had to face afterwards was not important. She said, I did not feel uh, any fear sitting there. She said, I felt the Lord would give me the strength to endure what I had to face. It was time for someone to stand up, or in my case, sit down. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Uh, so I, re- I refused to move. And, so, and what happened? You have a brave young woman placed in a situation that she really didn't want. Uh, and the culture uh, was arrayed against her. And what did she decide to do? And she said, my situation, I'm not moving. And because she didn't move, the culture moved. Isn't that great? It took many years uh, to move away from the racism of those days. And we've made many gains, as we all know, since then. So that still uh, racism 's is alive and well. Probably won't be gone until Jesus comes back. But we've made many gains. I've seen them in my lifetime. But it took the uh, collective effort of many people, Martin Luther King being one of them. But it, but it did start with a, with a young woman who's a seamstress. And so if you look at yourself, uh, sometimes you've got to sit down, right, to do something for God. Sometimes God tells you, you know, you need to walk. You need to stand up. Sometimes gonna, God's going to tell you, you need to run. But uh, <laughs> it is true. <laughs> But when you look at the book of Esther, uh, you see another young woman on another day fighting racism in her day, because in that culture, in the Persian culture where she lived, they didn't like Jews. And, it, and it's gonna become readily apparent as we study this book that they, they wanted to wipe the Jews out of their culture. And so here you have another young woman on another day uh, who decides uh, her situation wasn't to stay seated to deal with uh, racism. Hers was, I need to stand up. And that was uh, what, exactly what Esther did. When you get to chapter one, you're going to see how it took time for God to set up the situation to deal with the racism of that day in the Persian culture took time, just like in our culture, it took time for God to set things in place to put Rosa on that bus to then challenge that, that Christian woman. No, you're not moving today. The same thing. When you look at Esther, it took many years of Jews being in captivity for God to place a young woman to be brave. And so you need to stop as we look at this book and ask yourself, um, Number one, do I believe God is working behind the scenes in my life? Number two, do I really understand he's placing me strategically in a situation where I'm going to be given the opportunity to stand or to sit or to maybe run forward? The question is, what are you going to do when that situation arises? Uh, as we look at this chapter, the way that I see it, uh, it divides up into like scenes of a story. And we're going to look at four scenes of a story. And I've told you the sermons as we go through narrative literature are going to be different than, than when we're going through like didactic type teaching literature, like what we've done with the books of Paul in first and second, third John, et cetera. So this can be a little bit different. And so it should be fun. And uh, a breath of fresh air as we head in a t- totally different direction. So if you ask like, what happened to Pastor Marty? Uh, I'm still here. It's a different method teaching uh, this kind of literature. So what I want to do first is look at uh, the scenes of this particular historical narrative. Uh, and then we'll, we'll build it up to a, a, a climax as it were, as we look at what is God talking about in this particular story through these scenes. So scene number one, uh, Esther uh, verses one to eight. Uh, when we read this, you're going to discover quickly. Have, and by the way, have you read the book? I told you to read it last week. You read it. It's extremely helpful. If you do, it helps me when I preach. So you're not looking at me going, what is he talking about? Uh, so please read it more than one time. So what we know about the Persians is if anybody knew how to party, they knew how to party. Um, Do Americans know how to party? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, I don't know how to party. I was never ever into the party scene. Uh, I had a lot of friends that were, but um, I don't know how you feel about uh, motorcycles and et cetera, or Sturgis. Have you heard of Sturgis? Yeah. Sturgis. Now, uh, in South Dakota, Sturgis is really, really famous for all the bikers from around the United States go there to party. Uh, and they do it in the summer. Uh, and I did a little research on Americans and the party spirit, because that's what chapter one is about. If you thought the Bible was like mundane and boring, oh, not quite. Esther one is about a party that will blow your mind. So when you think about the United States, uh, Uh, I did some research on Sturgis last year in the parties one week in Sturgis one week uh they drank 40,000 glasses of hard liquor (laughs) problem (laughs) yes uh you think that's bad they sold an estimated 3 million gallons of beer in how long of a period of time a week a week uh, so if you don't think the United States uh, doesn't have problems, just go to Sturgis. I mean, it's, everyone there is, is totally intoxicated. Now, with that in mind, the party spirit, look at verse 1 of Esther. Now, it took place, the story that we're going to get into, in the days of Harshereris, and who was this? Well, he, This is the Harshereris who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. And in those days, as King Harshereris sat on his royal throne, which was in Susa, we'll stop right there, he's, he's going to have a party. Uh, But but just to remind you, in case you weren't here last week, Ahasuerus is not his name. That's a title. It's like the word president. So this is really Xerxes. Uh, Xerxes reigned from 486 uh, to uh, 465 BC. His father, uh, Darius I, reigned from 522 BC to 486 BC. You're thinking, I hate history. That's totally boring. No. If you're a Christian, that's totally exciting. Because what it's telling you is, during the reigns of these godless kings, God is at work. And so when you look at the father of Xerxes, Darius I, uh, he expanded the empire to be the biggest empire at the time. They were the superpower. They had power. They had money. They had wealth, etc. cetera. Um, but he, as he expanded his empire, he ran into the Greeks. And the Greeks were an up-and-coming empire. Uh, and they defeated uh, Xerxes' father at the Battle of Marathon in 490 B.C., the Persians didn't like losing. They lost face. And so when Darius goes off the scene and his son Xerxes uh, takes control of the, of the kingdom, he wants to settle scores. He has a little revolt down uh, in Egypt, has to go uh, quell the revolt. He has another revolt in uh, Babylon, has to go quell that revolt. But then he wants to uh, teach the Greeks a lesson. He's a, he's the superpower. He has the bigger military. They're just a fledgling empire. How dare they take on the mighty Persian empire? And so in verse two, we see the king sitting on his throne. May seem insignificant, but if the king was sitting on his throne, that means things were going pretty good. And so it's a time of peace for him, uh, but he's not happy with the peace because he wants to get revenge on the on the Greeks. And so he's going to throw a party. Now it says that this occurred... Um, as we read the text in verse 3, in the third year of his reign, uh, he gave a what? Banquet. banquet. Talk about an understatement. Uh, he gave a banquet for all of his princes princes in attendance. Um, and uh, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of his provinces being in presence. So to say that this was a banquet is an understatement. Uh, so you think about, in Sturgis, the biker's party for a week. Uh, well, he's going to go way past that. When you get to verse 4, uh, it says, he, he displayed the riches of his glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days. A hundred and eighty day party. I mean, the bikers and stewardess need to like read Esther. You know, they're not even anywhere near where the Persians were. So if you work this out on a lunar month and all that kind of stuff, this is about a six month party. And who's at it? Anybody, hey, anybody and everybody. If you went to their version of West Point and you're an officer, you were there. If you went to their version of Annapolis, because they did have a lot of ships, uh, you were there. If you went to the, the Air Force Academy, you were there. If you went to the Coast Guard Academy, their version, you were there. I mean, anybody who was everybody went to this party. Uh, who wouldn't want to be at that party if you're one of these, these men? You want to be seen, you want to press the flesh, you want to make connections. What's the purpose of the party? Purpose of the party is uh, he's he's raising money and support to attack the Greeks. He wants to get all of his people on board uh, to stand behind him as they go after the Greeks. And so it happened in the third year of his reign. He throws a a period a, a party of 180 days. You know, when you go to a party, you kind of get tired of the party after a while, don't you? You just kind of want to go home. It's like, okay, these people are acting crazy. Um, So if you are a biker, any bikers? No bikers here. Yeah. Well, the party this year is uh, August the 2nd through August 11th. Yeah. You can go there. There's actually Christians who go and I guess witness and, you know, uh, and and try to spread the light because I've done research and yes, there are Christian bikers that go, et cetera. Uh, But uh, they only party a week. The Persians partied for how long? Six months. Now, I, I would submit to you that if you're trying to win support of your nation to go to battle, to war, it's probably not a good idea to drink a bunch of booze to go figure out we need to do this. That's exactly what they did. And so when we read in the, in the text, uh, after that party ended, they weren't finished. They had another party. It says in verse 5, when these days were completed or when that party was over, the king did what? Oh, he gave another party. Uh, and, and, and the is in the capital of Susa, which if you look at the Persian Gulf, uh, the tip of it uh, on, the, on the northwest side, and well, really the west side of the Persian Gulf is, is Iran, Iran today, but that was ancient Persia. So at the tip, the bend of the Persian Gulf at the top, where the Tigris and Euphrates are, uh, that about 100 and, 150 miles north of that is where Susa was. That's the capital. And that's where they have this party. They had the second party at the king's palace. Verse five, uh, he gave a uh, the king gave a banquet. It lasted for how long? Seven days. Who's it for? Everybody. Everybody else. Everybody else. Uh, who were present in the capital of Susa? Uh, what happened when they were there? Uh, well, it says in verse six, uh, inside the palace there were uh, hangings of fine linen, uh, violet lin- uh, linen held by cords of fine purple linen, silver rings, marble columns, couches of gold, silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, precious stones. I mean, they didn't get this stuff at Home Depot. <laughs> this is unbelievable wealth. Uh, and verse seven says, drinks were served in wooden cups, no golden vessels of various kinds. And the royal wine was, well, so it was plentiful. According to the king's bounty, he had a huge wine cellar. And um, the king drank because he, hey, he had enough wine to feed thousands and thousands of his soldiers uh, and he didn't run out. Since in verse eight, the drinking was done according to the law. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Well, what was the law? Well, there was no compulsion for the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. In in our vernacular, if you want to drink, drink and, and drink as much as you want, it's flowing like the tigress. And if you don't want to drink, it's okay. Just enjoy the party. Do you well, think about all the people who only stared at the citadel, the palace, and never got to go in. And if you heard about the six month party and all the rumors that swirled around Susa, I'm mean, sure they were talking about just how amazing the party was. And then all of a sudden the king says, hey, if you're just a commoner and you wanna come into the palace, hey, come on in. It was the first time they'd ever been in. No, people didn't just walk in there. And they're, they're in there and they, they can have all they want. Um, Max Lucado, uh, writing about this, says concerning the palace, said the palace hall had 36 columns that stood 70 feet tall. Shocking. Each column was crowned with sculptures of twin bowls, which supported the immense wooden timbers of the ceiling. Each, uh, Even the mosaic pavements were works of art. He said, when Alexander the Great entered the palace of Susa a century later, he discovered in today's dollars the equivalent of 54.5 billion dollars in bullion in the capital that's 270 tons of minted gold coins uh did the king need money not really he was a wash in cash he's a superpower what's he need i need all my people behind me when i go for revenge against the greeks because we've lost face great motivation for war wouldn't you say terrible and the citizens were probably dumbstruck with the opulence as they went in. The, the thing, just a side note, there's lots of sermons in here, but as a side note, don't, don't be de- uh, deceived by the trappings of wealth because that's what the people were. So a couple of side notes I want to bring up. Uh, one Jewish targum of this particular chapter states that the goblets were the goblets from the temple in Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar had seized in 586 BC. So it's now 483 BC These goblets were taken over into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. They've been in their possession. I would say that if that is the case, if that Jewish targum is true, that those were the the goblets from the holy temple, this is sacrilegious. This is blasphemy because that's what godless politicians and empires do. They take that which is sacred and they defame it. And that's what they were doing. The second thing, um, a nation whose leaders make decisions based upon how drunk they are, and how drugged up they are, is a nation that's on the skids. Number three, uh, uh, this is just extra stuff outside my sermon. Um, (laughs) A a country is open for attack when its leaders are constantly partying and inebriated because the king should have figured this out. Why did Babylon fall? Well, Babylon fell because they had a huge party with Belshazzar, that's why they fell. And they just kind of, history repeating itself. And so back to my sermon. This was a party, to end all parties. It landed, lasted for how long? 187 days. 180, uh, open bar. You could do whatever you want there. Enjoy yourself to the fullest. But behind all of that, behind that huge party is God. God's looking at the carnality. I'm sure he's sad about it, but he's like, oh, this isn't gonna stop me from working. I'm gonna work in the middle of their carnality to do great things. So I don't know what kind of carnal chaos you're facing in your life, maybe in your family, maybe in your job, maybe at school, whatever carnal chaos you're facing, don't look at it and think, man, God is totally not in this. No, he works in those types of things. You know, when you have your Christmas party and the boss uh, takes you to a nice restaurant and he says, you know, there's a bar here at the restaurant and the bar is open and and the company is going to cover all the liquor for the evening. Do people really watch what they drink? Oh, I've seen those kind of things. Yeah, it's glass after glass. It's like carnal chaos because they're not paying for it. They're drinking and drinking and no telling. Whatever goes on in that carnal mess, God still looks at that and says, no, you're not going to circumvent my plan. So that's the party. Scene one. Scene two, there's a proposition at the party. This is interesting. This is where the story gets interesting. Verse nine, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace, which belonged to King Hashirah. So the The king gave a party, public party, for 187 days. His wife was like, I I, I can do that too. She has one for the women in the palace. It's a private party. Now, why didn't she join her husband's party? I think your minds want to know. Well, we don't know. Now, we do know from history um, that her husband, I think it's going to be later based upon uh, what happens, he later tries to have an affair with his, with his brother's wife. And when she, she pushes him back, his sexual advances, then he goes after uh, his brother's uh, daughter, his niece. So we could say Xerxes, is he's like a predator. And that didn't just happen overnight. He's sexually messed up. So this is gonna happen in his life. And if he's gonna do that like later, it's probably true that he was doing other stuff with other women too, because he had a harem. And I'm sure his wife, the queen, was not too happy with him. She's going to have her own party. Uh, the last day of the wild party, uh, things kind of turn in a direction nobody anticipated. Because God's at work. Um, when, you, when you look uh, at verse 10, you see how quickly things changed. On the seventh day, the last day of the party, when the heart of the king was merry, or translated, he was what? Drunk. He's drunk. Uh, he, he's merry with wine. He commanded... Aren't these great names if you're looking for babies, names for your children? <laughs> yeah, well, let's name him Me, Me, Human. <laughs> yeah, Me, Human. Uh, uh, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, uh, uh, Abgatha, Zethar, and Carcass. The seven, I'm just saying, that's probably not a good name for your child. We named you Carcass, huh? Anyway, back to my sermon. The seven eunuchs who served in the kings, uh, in the presence of the king. Uh, emasculated men who weren't a threat to the king. They couldn't produce progeny. We all understand this. I don't have to explain it anymore. Okay. So the king wasn't just uh, drunk. Uh, uh, he was like out of his mind with liquor. Cause he had a party for how long? 187 days. His thinking was not clear. Uh, and so what he, what he does is, uh, he tells them, um, he commands them, go get my wife. Bestie, who's having her own party and bring her in here, make sure she has got the crown on. I want to, I want to show her off. She's gorgeous. She's beautiful. Not a good decision. Have you ever, now I've never, I don't drink. I've never been drunk, but maybe in your past Christian life before you were Christian, you were drunk. Did you ever make a decision while you were drunk? You wish you'd have never made, I mean, dumb decision. Or you've seen friends make dumb decisions when they were drunk. I've had lots of friends who made dumb decisions when they were drunk. So you don't want to make a decision like, like what he's going to do while you're inebriated. Uh, when I was a child, a baby, uh, I was in my mom's arms, uh, and she was going out to our, our car uh, back then when cars were made of real metal and you could push on them and they wouldn't flex. Remember? Remember those days? Yeah, I just touched my Volvo the other day trying to reach for something. The hood gave in and I'm like, and then it popped back out. I'm like, not like they used to make them. But back in the day, uh, my mom was getting into the car that was parked on a busy street. Uh, Door was open. She's ready to get in. and Somebody uh, called her and got her attention. So she turned around to talk to him and a drunk hit my parents' car and crushed it, crushed it. We would have been dead inside the car. I mean, don't tell me God doesn't have a plan. God was there that day when that guy drinking made a bad decision to get behind his car and drive. But God's like, no, I got plans for that, that child later. And so, you know, the last thing you want to do is make decisions uh, when, you're, when you're drunk, like that guy did and like, like Xerxes did. Go get, go get my wife and bring her in her and pray to her around for all my drunk friends to see her. <laughs> Good idea, ladies, bad idea. <laughs> Your men are just sitting there. Men, bad idea? Yeah, okay. Uh, scene three. Um, you still with me? Verse 12. But Queen Vashti... Oh, excellent idea, honey. I'll, I'll be right there. No, the word but's telling you it's not going to go the way you thought it was going to go. Uh, she refused to come to the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became totally understanding. Oh, he's got a... Well, he needs anger management. He's very angry, and the wrath burned in him. He's, he's consumed. Now, the very first word is an adversative, but. It's the Hebrew word gam. And it, it should be... Um, Uh, It should not be a particle like this. Uh, uh, But because it's out of normal word order, it means it's emphatic. So it's telling you, story's going great until we got to the king's wife. Uh, She decides to tell her husband, I'm not showing up. I'm not going to do that. Um, How did he respond? He's completely angry. He he absolutely blew up. So she's going to bow out. He's going to blow up. He, He. It's like, I can't believe she told me no. Nobody tells me no, not even my wife. Uh, now, man, I want you to just take note, just as a side note, ladies, you can just sit there. Man, I'm just talking to you, okay? Uh, what I want to tell you is, is take notes. Uh, the, the scriptures do in, in the book of uh, math, uh, Ephesians 5, to 28, it does tell you to be submissive to the Lord as a Christian man uh, and to also sacrificially take care of your wife, right? Did you hear me? One man did, Dwayne, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's good to see you in church today, too, by the way. Um, yeah, you're over Aberdeen Proving Ground? Yeah, good to see you in church. Um, I pay attention as a pastor. I, I can only see a couple people in the front rows. That's about it. Um, but, but when, you, when you think about what God calls you to do, you, you must love your wife sacrificially uh, and then she respects you and she submits to and follows you. But it's not carte blanche. You don't have a blank check to tell her to do anything that you want. If you ask her to do something that's against her faith, against her dignity, that's immoral. She has every right to look at your face and tell you, Hello. no, not doing that. Now, if it's dinner or something like that, that's maybe negotiable. But, but you're asking her to do something like, off the grid, she has every right to tell you no. So I admire Vashti. I admire her guts. I, 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 I admire her courage uh, because she is a woman of principle. She's a woman of dignity. Uh, and she's not gonna reduce her dignity down to this cheap level of strutting around in a, in a drunken hall with a bunch of friends, friends of her husband's, so they can see her. So when she's asked to, to move out, she decides, no, I'm sitting. I'm sitting this one out. Proposal, Scene Four. What's the king do when he's got a problem like this at home? Well, uh, verse thirteen says the king said to his to the wise man, and that's an under, that's 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 a misnomer. Uh, he's, you know, you're no better than the people speaking into your life. Uh, you'll see how wise these guys are in just a minute. He spoke to the wise man who understood the times, uh, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice. And we're close to him. Now, here's a bunch of other child names for you, if you're looking for kids' names. Uh, Karshina, Sethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Uh, Memukan. Seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place of the kingdom. You know, a a leader, I don't care who the leader is, leader of a a company, of a country, he can be really no better than the people surrounding him. It says they were wise men. They knew the law, but they didn't understand women. Do you understand women? I've been 43 years being educated. Yeah, they didn't understand women. And so he's going to go to these men who uh, know law, but don't understand how to handle a wife, as we're going to see. So the wise counselors are going to, look at verse 15. It says, It says, According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti because she did not obey the command of the king delivered by the eunuchs? I mean, what are we going to do with her? She's broken the law. Uh, she's, she's gone off the reservation. So we'll call the last guy, Mimucon, I call him Mimucon the Marvelous. And, and that's in scare quotes. Because notice what this wise counselor says to him. And in the presence of the king and princes, Mimucon, the wise one, the marvelous, says, quote, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king but also all of the princes, us and all of the peoples who are in the provinces of King Hashireris for the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, the wives causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying King Hashireris commanded Queen Vashti to be brought to his presence. She didn't come. In this day, the ladies of Persia and media who have heard the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all of the king's presence and there would be plenty of contempt with anger. We will lose the country. <laughs> this is illogical, is it not? This is how it goes. Oh, so you have a, a dysfunctional marriage that has the appearance of being functional, but all of a sudden it looks, oh, there's leakage here there's leakage, and she just told the queen, the king no, and the, and the wise men are going, well, if she told you no, my wife's going to tell me no, and his wife's going to tell him no. It's going to spread over Twitter or X or whatever they use in that day to the whole nation. Next thing you know, we will defeat, be defeated by our wives, and we will not have to worry about the Greeks invading us. We'll just feed ourselves. You know, sometimes men run to the logical, illogical conclusion, don't they? Uh, so, I look at it this way. What should Memocan, the marvelous, have said? Here's what I think he should have said. This isn't in the Bible. This is a Marty. King Xerxes, may you live forever. Oh, wise king, you should have never asked your wife to come and strut around your drunken party. You, you have degraded her, not she, you. You must humble yourself, go to her privately and seek her forgiveness for your unreasonable request. Work out your own family problem with your wife. Should he have said that? Yeah. Yeah. You've attacked your wife's dignity. No, he didn't say that. Verse 19. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Media Persia so that it cannot be repealed. What kind of law? That Vashti should come no more into the presence of the king and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. Someone who will do exactly what you say as a man. Uh, and when the king's edict, uh, which he shall make, is heard throughout all of his kingdom, great is it that then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. This is so ironic. This is a book of irony because the, the man wanted respect from the very women they will not respect. I need to say that again. Were you listening to me? The, you, I need to say it again. Thank you. I got permission. So the men want respect from their wives, but they don't respect their wives. This is a whole sermon series. So we're just talking, I'm just, I'm just talking to the man right now. Are you listening to me? You're thinking, oh no. Okay, here, here it is. So, you know, whether you're dating or you're married or whatever it is, what does your wife want from you? Respect. You need to give it to her. You don't demand it from her. You know, he's, he's demanding it from, they're demanding it from all of the women. So the ironic thing is the very thing they're seeking, they're not gonna get. Because when the women hear this edict, they're not gonna go, oh, that's so wonderful. No, they're gonna go, who thought this up? Is it Memocan again? <laughs> How did the king uh, respond to that council, that terrible council, with his buzzed out brain? Remember, he's got a buzz going on, 187 day buzz. How does he respond? He should have said, that is the lamest advice I have ever heard. Verse, verse 21 And the word pleased the king and his princes. Oh, that's bad. And the king did as Memicon proposed. That's bad. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script and every people according to their language. It's a huge empire. Uh, and not everybody spoke the same language. Uh, that every man should be the, can you believe this? Can be the what? Can you imagine if you go home today and go, your wife says, what did you get from that, that sermon today, honey? That I should be the master of my house. That's not gonna go well for you that every man should be the master of his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. I mean, what planet was the king from? He should have never sent that misguided letter out to the whole empire. But what it does show that in that carnality, in that dysfunction, God's looking down from heaven going, oh, I'm positioning you. I'm positioning your entire culture to move the queen out, to move the right queen in. It's gonna be a young lady and she's gonna be from the race that you don't like And I'm going to just kind of move her in there. And I'm going to set up a situation where she's going to do a great work for me. Well, uh, Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is like the channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Whatever goes on in the culture with carnal people, God's looking down going, no, I got this. Wrap up, which is what I would call the practicum. So what's all this about? Why in, why in the world would the Lord put a drunken party in the first chapter of the book of Esther? One reason, he's gonna show you, and I call this the main motif of the, of the, of the chapter. He's gonna show you what? That carnal conflict set the stage for your entrance to advance God's purposes and plans. Do you see this? You don't see the hand of God outright, you see it behind the scenes. He's taken the carnal conflict to set the stage for Esther to get on the bus, as it were. And then when she's told, you need to move, she's gonna tell her husband, uh-uh, I am moving. That's gonna set up a chain of events that lead to the most ironic thing possible. God, well, he gets another young woman to step into the scene, as we'll see in chapter two, if you come back next week. And he's gonna, he's gonna say, you no. Know, I'm working behind the scenes. So when you look at your life, whatever carnal conflict that you're facing, wherever it is that you're working, or if the carnal conflict is in your own marriage, in your own family, God works in that stuff for his glory. When he puts you in a situation to lead things to justice and righteousness, are you going to do it? I mean, think about it. Carnal conflict, somebody uh, at your work is vying for your job. It's carnal conflict. Uh, someone is uh, testifying falsely about you. That's carnal conflict. Uh, someone's trying to take your right to work away from you because you said something at work that kind of exposed them. So there, that's carnal conflict. Uh, you have a godless mate. Uh, who you're now divorced, but she's doing all kinds of things against you to try to get more control of the children. It's, it's godless conflict. I mean, just stop and look at your life and say, what's going on in my life? This godless conflict. And do I understand that God is working in this to set up a situation where I'll get a choice. I either stand or I sit. Sometimes wisdom says, no, you sit on the bus and change your life, your culture. Sometimes God says, you know, you gotta get up and stand. It's gonna come your way as a Christian. May may God tell you, it's time for you to do something because he's at work. Let's stand. It is now time to stand. (laughs) God, thank you. Uh, for being real with us, uh, giving us a story written with such detail. We know the author was extremely uh, uh, part of this culture, understood even the, the furniture that was in the palace. Thank you for the way it speaks to us. May it challenge us uh, to truly be brave and courageous for you. Forgive us for sitting idly by and forgive us for having a small view of your, of your sovereignty uh, that you, you can work even through a, a situation like this to position your people to do great things. Surely you do that in our own lives. We give you praise and ask for courage to stand up in Jesus' name, amen.